We wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we have recorded this podcast, the Wajak people of the Noongar Bujar. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the traditions of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We particularly acknowledge their connection to the telling stories and how verbal interactions help to preserve their culture and language, and we certainly hope to draw from that. They say there are two certainties in life, death and taxes, and you're not here for a podcast about taxes. Death is a part of life. However, it's not a part of conversation about life or in life. Talking about death is not common. However, death is common. It is inevitable. So I'm here to break down barriers and smash stigmas by interviewing experts in the field of death and dying, the professions which we seldom speak of. Also, the stories of grief and loss, and often triumph, which comes from that profound loss. We're dying to talk, and we think you will be too, once you know more. Hashtag death, because conversations about death and dying should be trending. Hello, loyal and lovely listeners. This week, or fortnight, I should say, because I'm back to fortnightly episodes, I am speaking with Dilhari, who is an amazing marriage celebrant that I have known for many years, but she's so much more. Now, this is back to one of our sort of personal grief stories, so not a professional as such. But Dilhari has also undertaken the Death Walker training from Zenith Virago from episode four. So I would implore you to go back and listen to Zenith's episode as well. But about Dilhari, she comes on and speaks about her beloved father who is no longer with us. And Dilhari's brand in the marriage space is all about the feels and I can tell you right now, when you listen to this chat, you'll get goosebumps and you'll understand why she's all about the feels because she articulates feeling and emotion so beautifully. And I actually had the most amazing chat with her and didn't look at the time, don't even know how long it went for. We just delved into her story of losing her father and everything that came before and after. She's got beautiful insight into her own personal grief story, but also in typical Dilhari fashion, as a true empathetic person, a true empath, she looks at it from other people's perspectives as well. And she really, you know, she's really open-minded about grief and loss. So enjoy this chat. I know I enjoyed having it. So go on this journey with us and you'll just feel like you're being read a beautiful and insightful story. Thanks so much, Dil. So Dilhari, thank you so much for joining me and coming on board to talk about your beautiful dad and your experience. So take us back to your childhood who are you and who is your father? Thank you, first and foremost, Ingrid, for having me on this podcast. It's a delight to see you. I am a woman of color, grew up in a very Western culture, though. So I was born in Sri Lanka, but we left when I was quite young. My dad was the captain of a cargo ship, and so we toured quite a bit. I guess the main thing about my childhood, and in particular my relationship with my father, is distance, if I can put it that way. We spent a lot of our years apart, sometimes because of his work, sometimes because of my choices, and sometimes because of the choices of other people. But essentially, from 5 to 13, my father wasn't in my life, and that wasn't a choice of his. And I didn't really have a relationship with him. But at 13, kind of a pivotal age for teenagers with hormones and growing and finding your place in the world, I was reintroduced to my father. 
And at the time, I was living over in the US. But then I moved, packed up everything and moved to Brisbane to live with him and my amazing stepmother and two brothers and started a life altogether. So, I mean, there's so much probably more to that story, Ingrid, but I think if I can just keep it at, there was distance and there was this, I guess, tension of, I don't really know who this person is, but now I'm in their life and they're in mine and we have to figure out how to navigate this. Mm. So that's probably the childhood aspect of our relationship. Yeah. And did you find when you reconnected with him when you were 13, reconnected being that you actually lived with him, did you have resentment? What were some of the emotions that you kind of had re-entering his life? Did you feel left out? I guess, and I've said this before in a couple of blogs and stuff myself, when you are a stepkid and and to my stepmom, you always feel that you're on you know, some other team, essentially, a team that's only yours because you don't really know where you fit in the world sometimes. I guess at that point in time, I was a very spirited young woman, very independent, probably quite angry. And maybe that's where that resentment, yes, came from. I don't think it was necessarily at him. I think it was just at the world. And unfortunately, he was the brunt of that sometimes. Mm. I do regret that, but he I could definitely see even at the early stages of living together and being in each other's spaces how much he loved me, how much he had wanted to have that togetherness for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I think looking past my bratty childhood behavior, I can recognize that's what he wanted at the time. And What then transpired as you got older and became an adult? Did you stay living with him? Did you keep a strong relationship with him throughout? I actually did keep a strong relationship with him, again, marked by distance because a couple of years after I moved to Brisbane, Dad got a really great job opportunity in Port Hedland here in Western Australia. So him and my stepmom and brothers moved. And again, being the bratty, independent teenager, I refused. I think by that point, I was just so tired of adults making decisions for me. And bless my father, he thought he was doing the right thing by just acquiescing to my probably ill-advised plan of staying behind and living with a friend at the time and her family and finishing high school in Brisbane. But that stubborn streak is strong in me. and. I think for all the things he was still learning about me, dad knew that once I set my mind on something, it was kind of this immovable ship, Mm. so to speak. So he let me stay. But it wasn't a case of, I'm leaving you, we don't have anything to do with each other. It was constant telephone calls. It was constant check-ins whenever he'd come to Brisbane or my stepmom or brothers would come. We would catch up and there were occasionally moments where I would come to Port Hedland, like when I graduated. It was still connection. Do I have regrets? Absolutely, because I could have chosen to move. I could have chosen to have that really targeted and intimate time with my family and really build on that. But I guess that's, you know, that's life, the choices Mm. you make. Mm. Those are those sliding door moments. Mm. And you've gone on to have your own family. Tell us a little bit about that and your father as a grandfather and what that's kind of looked like. I got to admit, for most of our childhood, even my brothers, I think, would say the same. Dad always worked away. And it's not that we ever wanted for anything or even that we were in any way disadvantaged by his absence. We weren't. But that was just a facet of our relationship with him. He worked away and he came home and he was a great dad when he was there. But something changed in him when he became a grandfather. He was just an exceptional granddad. And I had my first out of wedlock. It was a surprise little baby, I think we're supposed to say. And it wasn't really the orthodox way of probably having a first child. But Dad and my stepmom really stood by me. I know that they copped 
a fair bit of criticism from the rest of the family because in our culture that's really not something that is done and the circumstances surrounding, you know, even the conception and all that. It was just the black sheep kind of absolutely coming to life in that scenario. But he backed me. He backed me all the way. And I remember calling him when I found out I was pregnant, sobbing, and him just saying, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, what are you waiting for? You got the house, you got the great job. What do you want to do? And I just thought in that moment, there were so many things he could have said, but really he was still asking me for a choice. So yeah, had this amazing little baby, my middle boy, Jensen, and my father got the chance to be a grandfather and he excelled at it. I mean, probably in all the stereotypical ways in that he spoiled him and did all the things that I wouldn't have wanted him to do, but he was a great grandfather and it was like he found this new lease on life and where I had always seen maybe this tough exterior and inability to really articulate emotions, I now saw this very softer side of him and yeah, yeah, it was just beautiful. What did you call him? What did Jensen call him? Like granddad pop? Pop, puppy. Poppy. Poppy. Yeah. They called him puppy. Oh, that's beautiful. And what types of things have sort of developed as you've had because you've got another child? I do. And you've got a stepchild, correct? Yes, I do. So how did all of that play out with your relationship with your dad and what did the distance start to become less and less the longer it went along? Oh, absolutely. So Jensen would have been about 2 and I realized I just needed a change from Brisbane. I felt very alone at times. You know, obviously I had an amazing support network there, but I didn't have my family. And by that point, they'd all moved from Port Hedland for quite a number of years. They'd been living in Perth. So I applied for a job here and got it. And it was the best decision I think I could have made. At the time, I was really uncertain because it was essentially a decision I was making for Jensen. And I guess there's that switch that flips in your head where you suddenly are making those selfless decisions. It wasn't a decision I wanted to make to leave everything that I knew in Brisbane, but I knew that it was the right thing to ensure that he had a relationship with my family and that I had a relationship with my family. So we moved back into the family home, which is tricky, you know, when you're an adult with a child moving back to mum and dad's house. And you've been independent now for what, four or five years? Oh, since I was 16. Yeah. Yeah, so a long time. Felt like a, we would have been about 11 years by that point. Wow. So, you know, and it's not that dad was the, you know, he must be home by this time and do this. He, it was just, you're living under someone else's roof and you're conscious of that respect and being in other people's spaces. And this was a young child and my brothers were, you know, just 20-somethings or actually even younger at that time. So it was an interesting time to navigate all of us together. But what it did give us was an opportunity to reconnect and reconnect on a much deeper level. A, for me to remember how it felt to have him in my life, my father, and for him to have a really great relationship with Jensen. Because mm, I was going to say that. Was it a great bonding time it for Jensen great. and Poppy? Yeah, he loved Poppy. Mm. He was very... They do, don't they? Oh, they do. He was just so close to him and kind of would follow him around. Again, my father, he was a man of few words. He really was. Just really observant. I think that's where I get my people watching. We love to watch people. But when he said something, it was quite... A, it was probably tactless. <laughs> generally offensive. <laughs> but you paid attention. You paid attention when he said something. And I think it was just really nice to watch him and Jensen have this relationship where they'd happily sit for hours in front of the television watching cricket or a cooking show or he'd sit down on the ground and play blocks with him or train or trains. And I just thought I'd never really seen that side of him. You know, he'd always just been dad going away, working, providing and being an excellent father. I just got to see a side where he had the opportunity to embrace being a grandfather. And then I found my husband. And I say this like I stumbled on him. 
I think I did. And he was wonderful. Mm. You know, he's wonderful. And I'm so grateful even to this day that dad had a chance to meet Doug. I remember Doug came over and cooked a barbecue. It would have been like 40 degree heat. And my dad said, he's a keeper. He's cooking for us. This is great. And I remember going to dad and saying something along the lines of, he's exactly the opposite of every kind of man I've ever gone for. And my father laughed and said, well, then he's the one for you. (laughs) He wasn't backwards in kind of admitting that he hadn't really necessarily altogether liked my previous partners. We all have a few mistakes from our teens and 20s. (laughs) But he really loved Doug and it showed in the way that he welcomed him into the family, welcomed my little bonus child, Michael, into the family. And it was just really nice the way that we all got that opportunity to, I guess, see that milestone for me and for dad to see that milestone Mm. for me as well. Mm. He'd always worried. He's a traditionalist at heart. Not that he thought I couldn't look after myself. That certainly wasn't the case. He could see that I could. But being that kind of traditional provider from that culture where the man provides, he saw in Doug someone who was going to, for lack of a better term, and I don't mean this patronizingly, someone who would look after me. Someone who would be loyal and yeah. supportive and be there for you. And he wanted that. And I remember mm. I remember the day we were kind of telling him that we we're going to get married and his response was just classic him, just, now I know you'll be okay. And a really quick segue about marrying Doug. I understand that you got married on the 29th of February. did. What year? 2016. So this year apparently is only your second wedding anniversary. Second official wedding anniversary. um, And a big shout out to Josh Withers who put that on his blog the other day (laughs) because, (laughs) because he married you. And I think that's beautiful. So we're in a leap year. Yes. So that's a really special marriage. Tell us about your glue baby that you had. Oh, my glue baby, yes. So I actually didn't know at the time whether I wanted to have any more kids. You know, I had this amazing bonus child. I have Jensen. We are kind of finding our feet as a family. And the kids had done so well just integrating their lives together. And then I realized that, you know, if there's one thing that's going to bond us all, it's another little, another little soul that's a bit of everyone, right? So we had Felix on the 7th of July, 2017, a very lucky 777 baby. Mm-hmm. And he has been exactly that. Mm. He's just a little bit mm. of everyone. And again, and a divine creature. He's been here before. Mm. And he just loved my father. And it was another little human that my father just kind of lit up for. Because across all these years, there had been a number of medical issues that ailed dad. There was a quadruple bypass, there was a heart attack, there was a stroke. It just, all these, I guess, years of navigating life and having these different milestones from our family, that's all been kind of in the background simmering is my dad's health and how he looked after himself or sometimes didn't look after himself. So around the time that Felix came along, dad was not the fittest he'd ever been, but he was still able to be a granddad and be a really proud one and, yeah, loved Felix. Loved this tiny little Mm. human. So if you can, just speak to obviously a little bit more of a decline in your dad's health and unfortunately his passing, what sort of transpired there. Yeah. So as I said, it's always been kind of simmering in the background, his ill health and hats off to my brother who really took it upon himself to look after dad for a long time. My youngest brother was working and unioning and I was navigating family and work life. And my mom at that time was just working away to kind of support the family as well. But Dad's health did decline, and I guess the narrative of my story is somewhat a bit of anger because I 
I feel like I'm holding dad to this standard where he didn't look after himself. He got these chances that aren't necessarily chances other people are gifted. And I didn't see with my own eyes that he made the most of those chances, really rehabilitated, really worked on his health, really worked on trying to get better or improve his quality of life. But again, that's my narrative. It's It may be not what he was living. And my mom and I have spoken about it since. It may not be something that he had in him either to do. So he was declining. And it was, so it was 2020? Yeah, 2020, because that, that was a leap year as well. And Doug and I had a vow renewal, which dad couldn't go to because he was quite unsteady on his feet by that point. And he didn't, in his words, want to be a burden on anyone. It's probably a regret of mine that he didn't come. And then we were coming up to Mother's Day and dad was having some complications with just keeping food down, nothing really related to the heart. He'd been in and had a hospital over the years, fluid on the lungs, different things. But this was slightly different, and the doctor, his doctor had recommended to my mum, I think he needs to go in. I think he needs to go into hospital, get this looked at. He was adamant. He was adamant, mum was saying, that he didn't want to go. And his wording was, if I, if I go in, I'm not coming out. And we all kind of, I guess, not that we were blasé about it, but we just thought, oh, it's what he's saying. He said it before. Of course he'll come out. He always comes out. But my mum did, I guess, grant him his wish of not admitting him into hospital until we had done Mother's Day. He wanted to be there for that and for my eldest son's birthday. And then dad was admitted into Fiona Stanley and they were looking at the medications. They were looking what might be causing, you know, this weird symptoms he was having I still don't know if we have an answer. I actually haven't even asked mum that if we still know what was happening at the time. But eventually those kind of things seemed to subside. A particular memory of mine though, Ingrid, was when I went up to hospital and COVID times, so it can't be a room full of people who go and visit. He had to go one at a time. So I went into the hospital room first. Mum said, oh, I've been up a few times. I'll just wait in the hallway. You go in. And I went in and was talking, trying to engage in conversation with this man who didn't really want to converse at the time. And he just kept asking where mom was. I'm like, she's in the hallway. Just talk to me. And I remember finally he was like, where's mom? And I must have just kind of got, all right, he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. I'll go get mom. I said, I'll go get mom. You know, I'll see you soon, dad. I think that's the line I said. And he looked at me and he winked. Dad wasn't really a winker. And he said, if you're lucky. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, nothing of it at the time. And then so mom went in, life continued on. He ended up getting transferred to Fremantle Hospital for the specific purpose of rehabilitation to get his legs moving again, get his mobility back up, get him kind of out of bed, really to then transition back to home. So There was a few occasions where I could have had the opportunity to go up to Fremantle Hospital, but didn't. Mum went almost every day. In fact, she did go every day. And then out of nowhere, I remember getting this phone call from my husband. And he had said, you know, I'm really sorry. Your dad's gone. And I almost didn't believe him. And I said, don't muck around. And I, I don't even know why that came out because... My husband would never joke about something like that. But it's funny where your brain has to catch up on that kind of news. And yeah, dad was gone. He'd had a heart attack out of nowhere. And so we all went up to the hospital. My memory of that is a little hazy, but I just remember being so like an out-of-body experience, looking at this person, at this body who used to be your dad full of life, and who just honestly kind of just look like a wax, you know, the wax statues? Yeah. Yeah. You just look like that. There was nothing. It was gone. All that essence that they talk Mm. about, it was just gone. And therein started that grief journey, I suppose, for me and my family. 
Thank you for sharing that. I got goosebumps quite a few times. Talk to that a little bit. Grief journey. And when you said something a couple of questions ago as well about, oh, that's just my perspective on it. That's just my take on it. Those are the words of someone who's really understanding that it is a different journey for everyone, including your dad when he was alive. And I think that's just something that's so, it's profound, I think, for people to be able to look at things that way rather than go, oh, he didn't do this and he didn't look after himself. And the fact that you've gotten to a point, whether that's taken a lot of work. It has. Yeah. (laughs) It has. I just love hearing that. Oh, but he may not have been able to give that of himself. That's beautiful. Same with grief journeys. You're on your own. Every individual is on their own. And then there's the collective grief, which we have no control over. And the things that happen from that big wave, that energy that a whole family bringing together at losing someone can, you know, create. So tell us a little bit about what you've been through personally, and also maybe what you've learned about others being on their own grief journey too. Yeah, thank you. I'll be really honest. The idea of death terrified me, terrified me, and probably to some extent now just scares me a little, but it's not that level of fear anymore. And that's solely been because of dad and the experience since his passing. So Shortly after I was lucky enough to participate in Death Walker training with mm. Zenith Virago. Yeah. I know that you've... Previous guest of the podcast. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> and you could listen to her for days, mm. honestly. But I participated in this Death Walker training to essentially be able to become a funeral celebrant one day and assist families in that grief journey. And Zenith makes it very clear at the beginning of this course that it's not a self-help course, but sometimes it's exactly what you get out of it. And that's exactly what I got out of it, which was to understand where my fear of death came from, but also to accept that it's inevitable that this will happen to everyone, myself included, everyone around me. And I I need to start becoming comfortable with the idea of the uncomfortability of death and what that brings. And I think what I experience the most is, you know, that continuum of grief. And we really do. We do it very badly, if I can just call that out. Here, here, sister. (laughs) (laughs) We do it badly. It's almost a tick and flick exercise where there's this checklist, a number of things you have to do, including potentially funerals and wakes and death certificates and notifying people and take your bereavement leave. What is three days? What is that? And then go back and everything's fine. And people won't talk about it. No one talks about it. It's that elephant in the room and no one will look you in the eye anymore. Because you're the sad, sad girl always crying. And they're uncomfortable with their own experiences with death, dying and grief. So why would they want to bring it up? Yeah. And I had that so much where I don't know, maybe it was that change in perspective for me, but I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about how I was angry and sad and scared and how I felt about him, but no one wanted to do that with me. (laughs) You're rocking up to dinner parties and everyone's like, woo, let's talk about fun stuff. And you're like, I want to talk about dying. (laughs) And I should have hung out over here. I should have. (laughs) And so you become that strange person Mm -hmm. for a while. And equally, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I just wanted the world to stop. And I was angry that it didn't. Everyone would go on their lives and the people would rush around in their cars and go to the bank and the supermarket. And I just wanted to yell and go, my dad died. Mm. How can all you people still be driving cars and buying groceries? My world has literally been turned upside down and sideways and shaken. And That's it. Don't you know my dad died? I almost wanted to get a shirt. Don't you know my dad died? What would it have achieved? There's a business idea. (laughs) (laughs) Copyright it. No one take that. (laughs) But it really was that you felt so alone because I just couldn't talk about it. 
And bless my husband, he would try, but I think our mortality is not something people are necessarily skilled at discussing. It just isn't. And I've come to accept that. So I would see people and they'd say, oh, Delharia, oh, I heard about your dad. So sorry, but we won't talk about it. So they shut that gate immediately. And I'd kind of go, well, what do I talk about? Because I don't care about the things that you're talking about, right? Because, uh, P.S. My dad died. <laughs> so, read the T-shirt. Yeah, read the T-shirt. <laughs> so I kind of traveled along that way for maybe about six months. And in fact, I, I even tapped out of parenting. And Doug, bless him, took the reins at home. I was just crying, throwing myself into work and crying and throwing myself into weddings, which was a little bit excruciating, and crying and just kind of existing in that mode. And also then observing my family doing the same thing. My mom was always so stoic, and I don't think I remember seeing her cry. My brothers were also very stoic, men a few words, very much like my dad. And then there was that anger again, you know, this little anger that just keeps bubbling away where you think, why does no one feel this like I feel this? And I spoke to my mom about it, and I said, I just... I think I remember just lashing out one day and going, why does, am I the only one who's upset? And she just, bless her, very calmly kind of said, well, everyone does this differently. And it serves no purpose for me to fall apart in front of you and your brothers 24-7. I've lost the love of my life. Of course, it hurts more than I can say, but I can't sit in that forever. Mm. And I just thought, Pardon this phrase, you selfish idiot, Dilhari. Mm. You just assume that you are the only one that this has impacted. It's impacted everyone. It's impacted everyone who was in his sphere, mm. my dad's sphere. We just navigate it mm. so differently. However, as a segue to that, I think a little bit too, this is no disrespect to your mother either, but if... That conversation could have happened like, I've lost the love of my life. I want to fall apart, but I don't feel comfortable doing that in front of you and your brothers. It might have been like a little shared moment earlier on and then everyone could have understood it in a different way and it could be a little bit more collective. What would have happened if you'd never brought it up and if you'd never said anything? I just would have sat in the anger. Yeah, and it might have escalated. I mean, you're saying, oh, you selfish idiot, Dilhari, but big person you for bringing it up too. I think no one's at fault, like you're saying, everyone does do it differently, but also true things can be true at the same time. Mm. You feel like, oh, I should never have presumed anything about Absolutely. her grief. However, if the conversations were a little bit more open at the beginning, some of that could have been rectified earlier. Not rectified because you can't rectify grief, but, you know, like some of your aloneness in that grief could have, you know, because a shared grief is a different type of grief, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess even that, touching on what you said, that isolation that some of us feel, I can only imagine how isolating it would have felt for my mum. And I know that she might not have wanted to fall apart in front of us, but to let her know that that was okay. It wasn't something that any of us would have turned to her and kind of shut the gate on her mm. for, I would have been there for her. Mm. Because I think knowing that she felt that depth of emotion in some strange way helped. Yeah. I wasn't alone in that. And to acknowledge and fall apart in front of people who you love and trust is almost like, it's okay for me to feel this bad. It's, it's, it's like, oh, I'm not weird for no. feeling this hurt. Still, six months, 12 months, 10 years later, it is normal. And it is. But the more that we all shut it down, hold it together in public, because I know that in private we all, you know, fall apart in different ways. But yeah. when we don't collectively fall apart, it's almost like we all think the other one is stronger than us. Yeah. And it's not competition. No. But almost this this drive to go, oh, no, I am strong, mm. you know, just, mm. just kind of suck it up for lack of a mm. better term. But it was two things that really pinpointed how I kind of changed my discussions around grief from my experience with dad and mm. how I navigate 
trying to be there for others who are experiencing it now. I remember I went to a celebrant dinner and beautiful celebrant Eddie, I'm sure you know of him. Shout out, Eddie. He's a gorgeous, gorgeous human. We'll have to tag him in the show notes. I know. (laughs) I remember going up to him and he had known that I'd recently lost dad, but I came up to him and we were sitting down and we were having a chat and then he said, tell me about your father. That was his opening line, not, how are you? I'm so sorry for your loss. All beautiful things to say. I'm not saying they aren't. But that was his opening line. Tell me about your father. And I burst into tears, Ingrid. I just sobbed. And he didn't do anything. He didn't get up and walk away. He wasn't repulsed by my outpouring of emotion. He just sat there. And he put his hand almost on my knee and he just let me go. And then when I'd composed myself, finished, I told him a story. I can't even remember which one, but I told him a story. And he shared with me, he knew how I was feeling. He had lost his father. And that telling the stories of the people we lost are how we keep them alive. And it has stayed with me. So every time, especially at work, I've been able to do this, where I know someone has lost someone. When they come and talk to me, it's the first thing I ask. Tell me a story about your person. And it usually is met with the same reaction that I had, which is tears. Well, because I finally feel sane. And funnily enough, one colleague said, no one has asked me that. And it was how I felt with Eddie. No one had asked me about dad. They'd asked me how I was feeling, how I was coping. Did I need anything? Oh, let's take your mind off it and talk about other things. But tell me about this person Mm. that meant something to Mm. you. Because it's like a way of memorializing them. Because every time you talk about them, you're like, they're real. They're still real. They're still here. I can put the shirt away for now. (laughs) It can sit in the cupboard for a little while. Just bring it out for parties and bar mitzvahs. So moving on to life without dad, once you sort of started on, you know, because I'm sure your grief is not linear and obviously different things come and go in life that give us our ups and downs anyway. So an added layer of not having dad there and grieving his loss is something else to add on top of the layers of life. What are some of the other things you found either surprising or amazing about the journey since he hasn't been here? There's a couple of things. So one was my kids' reaction to it. That's always really surprised me. And it really kind of goes back to that Peter Pan movie where as we grow older, we lose a lot of that innocence and our belief in something bigger, right? I'm not a religious person. I believe that there's something greater than us out there, but I'm not tied to any one particular religion. Husband's a man of science. Kids still developing their own belief system. But I remember, you know, Like you said, little things will just floor you. Out of nowhere, you'll watch a movie or I will watch State of Origin, which is something that we used to do with dad all the time. And I'll just suddenly be in the kitchen crying on the floor. And one particular moment, my son came up to me and he was like, why are you crying, mum? And I said, I really, really miss your poppy. He looked at me like I was a little bit crazy and he just kind of without missing a beat went, well, why don't you talk to him? Like, I was the foolish one because I hadn't thought of that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I talk to him all the time. I said, what do you talk about? He goes, everything. He's there. I just tell him everything. And in that moment, I thought, God, they've got it right. Kids just have it right. They know what they're doing. They should be teaching us. Yeah. In that moment, he did teach me something, which was that, you know, he may be gone, but I can, I can still talk to him. Mm. So I was journaling quite a bit. Mm. I was writing him letters and I've gone back and looked at them and there, you know, there's a lot of emotion in there. Some, not only sadness, that whole gambit of emotion, resentment and anger and guilt. And I've just written it all out to dad. And sometimes I'm in the car and I'll talk to him. Occasionally, I even still dial his mobile number and he wasn't tech savvy enough to have a voicemail, a recorded voicemail thing, so I can't hear him. But once that lady says, you know, you've reached blah, blah, blah number, leave a message, 
I left him messages. Good on you. Just, you know, talk to him. I know he's watching. It's a massive turning point for Doug and I where I knew, I guess I believed in the existence of him outside of this realm. Because that's all I've been doing since he's been gone, is trying to figure out how to live in a world where this person doesn't exist anymore. And that's really hard. A lot of people have kind of come to me and said, oh, but you know, over the years, there's that that distance. You weren't always around. That doesn't mean he wasn't integral. That doesn't mean I don't feel that loss. But it's trying to figure out how to exist without him. And I guess for me, wanting to know he's there, needing to believe in that measurable. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Right. Okay. So dad was a Buddhist. And in that culture, a year after the death, you go back to temple and it's called giving arms. Basically, there's a prayer service and it's really just encouraging the spirit to go where it needs to go, whether it needs to go into another vessel, whether it needs to go upwards or downwards. I don't know. It's just encouraging that spirit to take its next journey. So we did that. In the morning, my mum, my aunt and uncle, my brothers, and my husband and I, I didn't take the kids because directly after the ceremony, we were going to do a wedding ceremony down in Bustleton. And I said, oh, Doug, we'll just go and do these prayers for dad. And then you can drive me down to Bustleton because I'll probably puffy eyed and I'll need some time in the car. And I'll do the wedding and come back. We won't take the kids. And usually we would take the kids. Did the prayers. Got into this car that I'd owned for 29 days by that point. Brand new. Interestingly, and I don't say this to big note, but a Mercedes Benz. And dad used to always sing that song. Oh, Lord. Won't you buy me a Mercedes Mercedes Benz? Right? So I'd got one. And it was kind of like, I don't know, this, this homage to him. Went down, did the wedding, beautiful wedding, and on our way back, I'm lying back reclining, listening to the Hamilton soundtrack. Doug's driving away, and the next thing I know, there's this God Almighty bang. And then it was like literally being in a movie where I remember the car, like you're in a washing machine, where The contents of the car are just rolling around and everything's kind of moving in slow motion. And next thing I know, I'm wondering who is screaming so loud, realizing, oh, it's me screaming. Right, brain, focus. You've been in a car accident. You've rolled the car about four times. It's on its roof. I look over and Doug is unconscious. And in my head, I think he's dead. And for some reason, my instant reaction was to get out of the car and call someone to make sure my kids were okay. Logic escapes me as to why that was what I thought. Kids weren't in the car. Why do I need to call them to make sure they're okay? I don't know. That was the thought process. I just went, right, you need to get out of this car. And I got out of the car. And next thing you know, all the people behind us, because it's actually quite quiet on the roads, had stopped restored my faith in humanity. I've got to admit, these people were incredibly good humans who got dug out of the car. I was traipsing around the bush trying to find a phone, trying to find anything to contact somebody. And next thing I know, I'm looking at Doug. He's sitting on a hill with, you know, those silver reflective blankets? Because the ambulance was already there. Just plugging Mercedes here. The minute the car goes offline, it alerts everyone. So I didn't really have to call anyone. They just had kind of arrived to that destination. Yeah, I like that Mercedes. Big tick. Yeah, big tick. And I was looking at Doug and I thought, oh God, he's alive. Wonderful. And then he just kept asking me, he was sobbing and asking me where Felix was. And I said, honey, Felix isn't here. And he'd go, thank God. And then he'd cry some more and he'd go, Where's Felix? Was he's in the car? And I thought, oh my God, he's got an acquired brain injury. What's happening? Paramedic told me, no, it's just a little bit of adrenaline delayed amnesia kind of shock. He'll be all right. We'll monitor him. 
But that went on for a good 10 minutes where he would just kept asking me where Felix, our youngest, was and then sobbing. So it was just really overwhelming. Then you kind of, it happens in where I had the accident in slow motion, you know, airbags going off like snow in the car, all that. From there, things happen quite fast where you're just kind of shuttled along on this adventure of going to hospital and people just looking at you and testing and testing and both of us getting multiple, multiple tests and scans to make sure we're okay. And at one point, I remember asking a doctor, I'm just not sure what you're still testing for because we're fine. And it was the look he gave me. And he said, listen, the police have been to the site and he showed me some of the pictures of the car and we've been looking at the pictures of the car and there's no logical explanation for how you two are still alive. You know, anyone who had this kind of accident should be dead or at the very least should not be as okay as you were. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you shouldn't even be walking. You shouldn't even be talking to me. We can't figure it out. So we don't know if it's adrenaline pumping through you and there's internals. We don't know. That's why we keep testing you. And I think it was at that point that I just went, huh, the penny dropped for me. And I looked at Doug, and he'd heard all of it too. And I just started crying. And he said, what? I said, it was Dad. Yeah, it was him. I don't know what I believe uh, most of the time, but I believe that, that it was him. And Doug, even being a man of science, I think he believes that too. Mm. So that was pretty powerful because from that point on, every person we talked to, be it paramedic, medical professional, police, insurance assessors, Mercedes themselves, they agreed. You shouldn't be. You should be significantly more damaged than either of you are. The car was crumpled, Ingrid. It was just gone. And in fact, had our youngest been in the car, he would have been so seriously injured. So it is all those tiny little sliding door choices where I think was it those choices or was it him? And I choose to believe that it was him. Oh, me too. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think there could be that many little fateful, like you say, choices. And people say that they've got guardian angels, but you really do know that you have. He's mine. And did you remember back to the if you're lucky comment? Well, do you know where that comes into play? It was something Zenith said to me in the Death Walker training. She had said, I want you to remember that dealing with death and grief is hard. It's really difficult. It's emotional. It is a roller coaster. It's all those things. But she said, if you're, if you're really lucky, it's also quite beautiful. She had said to all of the students in this class, I encourage everyone to try and see the beauty in death and in that grief. And she said, often, especially people who have been sick or unwell for a period of time, they will tell you when they're going. They will find a way to say goodbye. And when I looked back at the end of the three days of that training, when she went around to everyone and said, what is your takeaway? That was mine, Ingrid. And I'd missed it at the time because I didn't know that was him saying bye, but it was. Mm. That was him telling me, it's okay. And that was hard too because I'd missed it, but I guess quite beautiful because I was able to subsequently and down the track after many months of grieving realize that I did get to say bye to him. And it's a touch point forever. Yeah, forever. And nobody can take that away from you. Yeah. I feel uplifted. <laughs> it is beautiful. It's truly beautiful to hear a personal recollection of a true sign, I think, from the other side, a true moment where, hey, guess what? You're going to be lucky today. You know, I think that's, yeah. that's truly beautiful. And, and you talk to people and people will rationalise it in different ways. Mm. They will say, oh, well, it was German engineering. And yeah, of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. To a point. Right. 
but it's something bigger than us. And for someone like me that had really struggled with my guilt around not seeing dad in his final days, I mean, I I know I didn't know. Logically, my brain understands that you weren't to know he was going to pass, but it has helped with that guilt to, for me, understand he's around. And like you said, no one can take that away from me. No matter how many people try to rationalize it into other things, that's what I believe. And I believe he's around. My mum calls it, your dad's still up there pulling strings for us. Because there have been so many things, like my brother got this job that he'd wanted and, you know, the other brother got a job and, you know, she got this house that they were going to move into. And it's the pulling string, which is quite nice to believe that. I guess even when you leave this mortal realm, the people who are left here, they can still believe. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing. That's truly amazing. And I feel really light. Yeah. And I hope that people got a lot out of that because I know I certainly did. Well, thank you for giving me space and letting me talk about my dead daddy. <laughs> no problem. And get that T-shirt line going. <laughs> ASAP. My dad's dead. <laughs> Online store, people. <laughs> you heard it here first. Thanks, Ingrid. No, probably thanks. Thank you so much, Dilhari. Your personal insights and vulnerability are really what this podcast is all about. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on, for speaking with me so candidly and beautifully, I think it is to be said, a beautiful, gentle perspective on everything you've been through, so open-minded, so willing to look at things from different perspectives as you've gone along. So to me, this is where the gold truly is. And speaking of gold, If you go onto Dilhari's website, which is www.kissmeyoufool.com.au, you will see a beautiful gold kiss. That is her signature. So, you know, Dilhari is so experienced in the space of marriage celebrant work. She is the type of person that could, of course, articulate beautifully someone's life, maybe a funeral, and that might be something which is coming. But also, she's just got so many facets, you know, and really insightful information, not only on her website, but also on her Insta. She blogs. She's a lawyer. She's a mother. You know, she's a daughter, as you you know, you've heard so beautifully in the episode. So, I would encourage you to follow her at all of her socials and check out her website. She's just one of those people that you know that she does this for all the authentic reasons, all the reasons that, you know, really all of us get into marriage celebrant work, funeral celebrant work, telling the stories of others. But really, I think you'll agree, didn't she tell her story beautifully? So thanks again, Dilhari, and thanks everyone for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this episode informative, interesting, or if you learned something, we'd love for you to follow, rate, and review, share, tell your friends and family. And also, maybe you'll be dying to talk after today and you might even start a conversation about death and dying because we know that it's either that or you'll have to talk about taxes. And we know that death's not that boring, right? Thanks again.